is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day, Saturday, August 29, 2020. Where has the summer gone? And could it go faster? Can we get 2020 behind us? And with a happy ending, 2020 has not been a great year for most of us, but it will be consequential. Here's a consequential moment for a friend of mine, a guest on today's show, PGA Tour Pro, Shane Birch who just turned 50 and became part of the Champions Tour. What did he do in his second tournament? Give a listen. If you listen hard, you can hear the ball go in. A walk-off eagle in a four-way playoff, beating Bernhard Langer, Kenny Perry, and Glenn Day. Wait till you hear Shane describe it on the back half of the show. Here's a preview. Tour Champions Q School, his second event. Since turning 50, eagle to win. And there it is, Shane Birch with an eagle on the first playoff hole. Has become the fourth. What a game changer for a great Colorado kid. It's the best feel-good sports story of this summer. Boy, have sports gotten into our lives. We talk about that with my first guest, Terrence Carroll, returns to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives here in Colorado, the first African-American to hold that position, the only one. And he is smart as hell. He's not just a lawyer, he's a police officer. He also has a divinity degree. He's a clergyman. And we talk about everything, including race relations, policing, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. This is a great episode of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It was a big week in America with shameless audacity. First of all, did you hear the sister of Donald Trump go off on her little brother when she did not know she was being taped? Marianne Trump Berry who had the experience of being a longtime prosecutor and then a federal judge. She knows how to size up people, and she sized up her little brother, and we heard it, and we'll hear it again toward the end of this show. But that RNC and Donald Trump's relentless assault on truth and norms and law, the Hatch Act be damned, we need to be relentless back, relentless truth-tellers. The theme of this week's show, don't quit. Never quit. Keep going. Keep trying. I don't quit. As they found out, they're going to have to take the microphone away from me. And then I'll get my own microphone. And I'll tell the truth about what's going on with Trump and his enablers. And at this point, you are collaborators. And it's bad. You can have your pet causes, but if you support a monster just to get your goals, then you are turning into a monster. And it was a monster shooting that I saw in Kenosha. Jacob Blake should not have been shot. 
I've never seen such poor policing. I'm not saying he's some innocent whatever, but I will say it's way wrong for that 17-year-old militia kid from Antioch, Illinois, to go there with an AR-15 and start shooting people, and then to have the likes of Michelle Malkin and Denver Trump Radio back that play. I'm against it. I'll tell you why. Here's the batting order. Speaker Carol first. Then my troubadour, Dave Gunders, he's got an epic song called Eddie Don't Quit, which is perfect for Shane Birch, who could have quit because playing pro golf is not easy, unless you're Bill Mickelson. But for Shane Birch, it's gotten a lot easier since he won a big tournament, and he gives me his first long, exclusive interview about his life, his journey, how he won, and what happened. I'll give you a spoiler. Kenny Perry, who's won a lot of big tournaments, he had to whip on a shot on the last hole to get Shane in the playoff. How does a pro whip? You will hear about it. Then at the end of Shane's interview, there was just so much in the way of consequential sound this week that I'm starting a new segment called Impactful Sound. And I'm going to rank them in the order that they impacted me. Some of them involve the NBA, some involve Trump talking, others, Joe Biden. But I like to make lists of interesting things for you to hear and for me to comment on. That's at the end of the show today. So let's get started with former Colorado Speaker of the House, Terrence Carroll in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Terrence Carroll, an accomplished attorney, a man of all seasons. We know him as the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the great state of Colorado. Terrence, welcome back to the lounge. Oh, thanks for having me, Craig. I'm glad to be here. Tell everybody how you became a lawyer and why. You know, I I think the, the origin story of all this, although it's changed over time, is that, you know, as a kid, I grew up watching Perry Mason movies all the time. And I always wanted to be like Perry Mason. And then my neighborhood in Washington, D.C., before it became super gentrified, one of the folks who lived down the street from me happened to be Justice Thurgood Marshall. And I studied him in school and I studied the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and all the great lawyers associated with them. And it kind of made me want to be a civil rights lawyer, although I never became one. But that that was the long story of it. And I didn't do it right out of college. I ended up doing some other things with my life. And after my mother passed away in 2002, I thought this would be a great opportunity for me to pursue that. And did you realize those Perry Mason movies you were watching were filmed in Denver, Colorado? I did not know that until years later. In fact, I didn't know that until about 10 years ago. Yeah, right in the city and county building, my old stomping grounds. And I'm sure you found that out. And where did you go? DU Law School? I'm a DU Law alum. And is that back when it was right next to the courthouse? No, I started off at the Park Hill campus and then finished at the new campus. Well, are you glad you went to law school? Is it fun being a lawyer? I'm glad I went to law school. I'm, I'm glad I did it. It was it was something that I'm, I'm proud of. I don't really practice anymore, uh, at least in terms of working at a big firm. I still use my lawyer brain, but it was it's I mean, all the stuff I've done as a lawyer and it's allowed me to do and the ways that I think 
uh, were uh, it's, it's been an exceptional journey for me and something I'm glad, I'm glad that I did. I witnessed that race in 96, Strickland v. Allard. It was rematch, actually. It started in 1990, I suppose. You got here when, in 92? I got here in 92. Anyway, they branded Strickland a lawyer lobbyist, and he was running against Wayne Allard, who was a veterinarian. And I was thinking, well, what would prepare you to write laws better, being a veterinarian or going to law school and learning how laws are made and enforced? I just always thought it was an advantage to be in the legislature, to be a lawyer. But you are the guy who did it. You rose to speaker of the House. Am I right? I, I did rise to Speaker of the House, and I think it surprised a few people. Heck, it surprised me. I know, but what about your legal skills? Isn't part of what you learned at DU Law School applicable to your job as a legislator? I think there are two things that I learned, that, at least two parts of my education that were applicable to me as a legislator. One, going to law school, being able to understand how laws are constructed, how they're drafted, how they're written, and their meanings. And another was having a Master of Divinity degree and understanding people and how to interact and engage with people and, and being able to have a great deal of empathy for folks. Right. And you were the first African-American speaker of the Colorado House. Am I correct? I was. I, I was the first and to date the only one. And hopefully we'll correct that in the future. You don't like having a record all to yourself? Being the first is good. But the true test is when you, if you paved the way for a second, a third, and a sure. fourth, and to the point where people don't realize that you actually have an African-American speaker of the house where it just becomes par for the course. Well, we've set a good background. You are not just a lawyer, but you've got a divinity degree. Right now, we need to learn from you, Terrence. What's going on in the world? Are these the most frightening times? I'm losing sleep over what's happened in Wisconsin, Kenosha. What about you? No, it's it's all pure crazy right now. I and it's just it's it's certainly bothering me to a large degree. I mean, twenty twenty has been a, a, a record year, and not for good reasons. I know it. How are you putting up with the COVID? You and I work downtown. I'm at Sixteenth and Broadway. Where are you? Sixteenth and Lincoln. I'm at Sixteenth and Lincoln. I've been working from home since March, and there's probably. Probably not going back anytime soon. Well, I was just down there and they're getting ready for more possible violence. It's a shame what's happened at your old workplace, the state capitol. I saw that. It's sickening. I wrote about it in the Colorado Sun. But there are a lot of peaceful protesters. You worked in the government. What's the solution? Oh, I forgot. Beyond just having a divinity degree and a law degree, you're a peace officer as well. Tell everybody about that before you tell us how to solve all the problems of the world. You know, one of my first jobs out of college, in fact, my first real job as a real person, as an adult, as a grown-up, was as a police officer. So I'm actually a fully certified peace officer in the state of Colorado, and I still continue to serve today as a volunteer peace officer, as a reserve peace officer with, um, with the Colorado Rangers, which is the state's law enforcement shared reserve. And you have a badge and you get to carry a gun and you get to enforce the laws of the state of Colorado? I do have a badge and um, I'm authorized to carry weapons and, and to enforce the laws of Colorado when I'm on duty. So, my God, what do you think of Kenosha? It looks like a big double standard. My God, this poor guy, Blake, I don't think he should have been shot in the back like that. 
And then you have this 17-year-old from Illinois who drove there looking to be a vigilante, a militia member, and he shoots three people, two of them dead, and the cops let him walk away. It feels like a double standard. What's going on? It, it definitely feels like a double standard. You know, you have a guy, and we don't know the full story in either one of them yet. It's the lawyer in me where I like to say, you know, we don't know all the facts yet. But, I mean, just on just on the, your basic look, time of face evidence, it, it just looks bad on both accounts um, without having to see anything else. Just on its facial, on its face, it looks very bad, you know, and... And we've heard a lot of different stories and misinformation out there about Mr. Blake and others about that young man who's actually from Illinois. We have Tucker Carlson and folks like Dudley Brown trying to do legal defense funds for him, saying he was just merely defending himself. Michelle Malkin, who is sadly part of Colorado now, she's leading the charge for this double killer. He's been charged with murder twice over now. He's been charged with first-degree murder twice. But, you know, it's interesting about guys like Tucker Carlson and and Dudley Brown and, Mich- and, and, and Michelle Malkin, who's not a guy, is that when Philando Castile was killed for, and was legally carrying a firearm and told the police officer that he had a firearm, and then the officer subsequently fought, shot and killed him in front of his wife or his girlfriend, you never heard Dudley Brown talking about how this innocent legal gun owner was shot down by the police simply for the fact of having a firearm on him. I mean, that's that's the place where they're most shameful in their, in the, in their duplicity. You know, when legal firearms owners like African-Americans carry their weapons legally and then are confronted by law enforcement and treated poorly by some law enforcement officers, you never hear them crying out in anger over things like this. And I, I posted on Twitter earlier this week, that if the group on the other side had been Deacons for Defense, which was a group of African-American gun owners during the civil rights movement, had they been out there, would they have been afforded the same respect that Kenosha Police Department afforded the Kenosha Guards? And I wonder, it's a big um. I was just watching the MLK march on Friday, and it moved me, especially when Martin Luther King Jr. stood up there and said, hey, I'm a victim here. My dad was shot dead, and I think his grandma, too, six years later. My God. She was assassinated in the church. It's just unfathomable. And think about the anniversary, what was it, 65 years ago? Poor Emmett Till. It was before I was born, but that story... When did you hear the Emmett Till story, and how were you trained to handle race relations as a kid growing up in the nation's capital? I heard about Emmett Till for the first time when I was actually in elementary school on a trip to a museum, and you know it was, and I just thought it was an absolutely horrific story um, when I first heard it. But growing up as a kid, how I was raised, and it was by my mother who said that, you know, whenever you encounter police officers, make sure that they can see your hands, especially when I started driving when I was 16. She gave me a, my rules for the road on how to handle police officers. If I get stopped, turn my engine off. Make sure I put my hands up on the steering wheel or on the dashboard. Make sure I say yes, sir, or no, sir, and don't do anything that would give them an opportunity to try to kill me. Good advice. So my mother was raised in the segregated South, mm. born in 1917. 
So we see um, had some experiences with police officers who did not value the lives of black people. I'm thinking about you growing up in D.C. I like the way it was portrayed in Plot Against America. I don't know if you watched that on HBO, but I thought it was dynamite. And it's about a Jewish family and they go to Washington, which is more of a, you know, black people had more freedom in D.C. than they did just across the river in Virginia. That is true. Although I don't want people to, you know, come away thinking that it was, that D.C., although it was called Chocolate City, was some paradise for black people, though. Well, I don't know. I did have Norm early on, and he did use that phrase, Chocolate City, although he says Atlanta, where he's hanging out now, is even more so. So that was Norm's perspective. But I know this. You are right across the river from Virginia, where some real old Southern traditions still abide and that confederate flag's been flying just here south how did you feel about that growing up you know i've always thought the confederate flag was backwards and something that we should not embrace as a people you know it's just the way my mother raised me she was a civil rights activist even though she you know wasn't formally educated she was always an activist and i grew up knowing that that flag was not a flag that anyone should be proud of. And I went to military school for two years in the heart of Virginia, right on the James River. And there was just some good old boys down there. And I learned from my experiences with them that their embrace of the flag had nothing to do with history or heritage or anything like that. It was waved in front of us to denote white supremacy. It was never used for anything else. And, in growing up in, and also growing up in DC, you get to see a lot of different protests come through the city. And I saw a few Klan protests in D.C., and they were waving the Confederate flag. And so for me, the Confederate flag was never associated with anything good or wholesome. Well, things changed for me with the Trump administration. Just about this time, three years ago, 2017, Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm sure you've been there. Did that shock you to see those guys with tiki torches chanting blood and soil and Jews will not replace us? Nothing like that shocks me anymore, sadly. I wish it did. It did not shock me. What did shock me, and it shouldn't have shocked me, I thought at least our president and his administration would have stood up and and been more vocal in their denunciation of these white supremacists. But instead, he said, you know, they're good people on both sides. You know, which is, you know, it was shocking to me that an American president would seek to justify the actions of racists. It shocked me too. And I was invited on Nine News with Kyle Clark and I said, hey, it's wrong. Heather Heyer got murdered by a white supremacist and you're talking about very fine people on both sides. But that's been followed up by Helsinki, the Ukrainian shakedown, the beating of peaceful protesters to get to St. Anne's Church. What am I leaving out? Every day it's another atrocity by this guy. That's how I feel about Donald Trump. What about you, Terrence Carroll? Well, you know, I try not to talk about him too much simply because I don't want to raise my blood pressure. <laughs> but, you know, just as a president, you know, I, I, I think he's failed us as a country. And, and, this ha- and this is not about his personality at all. You, that's a whole separate discussion. But if you talk about the very basic norms of American democracy and, and, our, and, our, and our democratic republic, You know, he's failed us in those. And instead of trying to bring us together in times of crisis, he's always looked for wedge issues to push us apart. And in America as a country, generally speaking, and I'm an optimist, we've always have been 
or at least presidents have tried to bring us together in times of crisis. And it's been completely different here. It sure has. And it's different for every group. And I'm ashamed that Stephen Miller is a Jewish guy who works for Trump. And I believe he's a white supremacist. I just got the book Hatemonger, and I'm going to have the author on very soon. But I watched the RNC, and there were so many African-Americans put on the stage, like Herschel Walker, Diamond and Silk, other ex-football players. Gosh, I mean, I know how I feel when I see a Jewish person do that. But who am I to talk? And and let me ask you this, Terrence. Do you know Trump supporters, and, and how do you treat them now? I do know Trump supporters. I have friends who are, are Trump supporters. You know, I do my best to treat them with a great deal of respect. I still treat them as friends, but we have we've come to the point where we agree not to talk about Trump or anything related to Trump. Right. But at a certain point, don't you have to question the friendship with a person who can enable and advocate for Donald Trump, given all that is obvious? I'm not going to lie. It's been trying. It's been absolutely trying. So, yeah, it, it's hard to maintain friendships with people who are like that. And and you sometimes, and I've asked them occasionally, how can you have me as an African-American friend, but yet support a president who and who inspires heinous actions? And I, and I don't use that word lightly, inspires, against people like me, or, or uses language to divide groups of people based on ethnicity, heritage, race, sexuality, whatever you want to, what, I mean, that's his baseline way of performing. Right. He radicalizes people and it manifested itself with that horrific shooting in El Paso, Texas, going after Hispanic people. Then at the Tree of Life Synagogue, it manifested itself with a killer aggravated with immigration policies, taking the Trump way of thinking, took a gun, just like this kid in Wisconsin the other night, a big Trump supporter. I mean, at a certain point, do we have to consider people who are on his side just bad people to not see what's going on? You know, for me, I don't know if he radicalizes people. I wouldn't say that. I say he provides political cover for people who've already been radicalized in certain ways to have permission to do the things that they've always wanted to do. I mean, they've been, I mean, it's not like Trump got elected and all of a sudden all these folks became white supremacists. They were there already. It, it, it's just that he provides cover. Marty Coniglio gave up his career at Nine News, at least for right now. Hopefully Trump will be repudiated and guys like Marty will be celebrated. But he said that in his experience, and he grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, this has revealed that maybe four in 10 white Americans are white supremacists. Will you put it that high? I would, I, you know, I would hope that's not true. But there, there are people who have said things that I'm shocked that they've said them. And I've had to do double take those takes on them who, that I'm just shocked by some of these things that have come out their mouth. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to throw a number out there because I don't want to be wrong. I like to be kind of correct on that. But I am shocked by the numbers of people who have tried, who've at least voiced some uh, allegiance or affinity for some white supremacist principles. It's frightening. What do you think of athletes standing up? The NBA led the way, the Bucks first, and now we have a situation 
that I haven't seen in my lifetime. And I've lived a pretty long time. Even after Kennedy was shot, the games went on. The NFL played 9-11. There might have been a short delay, but here we've had interruptions of pro sports twice between COVID and this situation. Let's focus on the NBA. Are you proud of what they did? Do you think they have a, a good strategy? And what would you advise? Man, I, I, I think it was a good strategy. There are people who won't feel easily right off the folks who are out in the street protesting because, you know, there's some people who rioted who snuck their way into it, but they, but they have to stop and pay attention to when folks like LeBron James say something because he's considered someone who's respected. He's good at his game. In fact, he's one of the greatest of all time or professional athletes are looked up to by young black and white kids alike and young Hispanic kids across the board. And so when your heroes stop and say that something's a problem, it's effective. It, it gets people to notice it. And just look at it. I agree. But it also activates the other side. I heard one of the hosts on Denver Trump radio say, well, I don't like LeBron James. He's not as good a, a person as Kobe Bryant or this or that. And I love Kobe, but what is there to criticize about LeBron James? He's been in the spotlight since he was a little kid. He's handled it well. He's a great family man. He's given a fortune for educational facilities in Akron and elsewhere. Yeah. What is there not to like about King James? What he's, I mean, what's that person saying is that he doesn't like the politics. That's what he's, well, that's what he's saying. Well, he, he's been tough on Trump. He won't go see him, and he's spoken out. But I think there's an obligation at a certain point. I, I don't know if you saw Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, who never gets political, did last night. I saw his tweets. He, he reached a breaking point. So did Marty Coniglio. So did I a while back. And it started with Charlottesville. And I kicked myself for voting for Trump back in 2016. Can you forgive me? You're a clergyman. Please forgive me. I believe in grace and redemption and mercy. So I always do. I mean, I'd rather have someone come around late than not come around at all. How does religion factor into all of this? I mean, the same people on Denver Trump radio, you take Peter Boyles, that hypocrite. He's gone all in for Trump. He used to love his story like Jerry Falwell Jr., but nobody wants to talk about that if you're on Denver Trump radio. There are lots of things that people don't want to say, but I'll ask you, what did you think of Jerry Falwell Jr.? You know, I, I, I take the position of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who fought Nazi Germany. And, and not to make those comparisons, I'm not going to do that at this point. But, you know, I, I, I take his perspective that, you know, he argued that a lot of people are looking for cheap grace, and that's grace without true redemption, that's grace without true salvation, that's grace without true mercy. And I look at someone like a Jerry Falwell, and I look, Junior, and I look at his theology, and how could he say the things he says and still consider himself to be a Christian? And I, and I, come, I come back to Bonhoeffer that they're engaging in cheap grace. Folks like that do not want to tackle with the scriptures and the theology of Christ in a very meaningful or substantive way, because if they did, they would have to reorient and reshuffle some of their beliefs. They would have to look at themselves differently. Because if you look at Christ and you look at the Gospels, even if you take Christ out of it and you look at the Hebrew Bible and you just go to the what, what we in the Christian church call the Old Testament, the Torah, you know, they would have to function differently. 
their theology is off course even from that. Because if you look at the major and minor prophets, they were all about justice and making sure that the folks who sought at the gates of cities like Jerusalem found justice for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, those who had no voice. It was always about justice. And justice is not simply about law and order. Justice is about how do you create a restorative community, or as Dr. King talked about, how do you create the beloved community? And if you're working actively against people finding grace, if you're actively working against extending love to your fellow human being, then you have to question whether your faith in Christ is something that's substantive or not. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Wow, Terrence Carroll, I don't know if you know this, but a couple of weeks ago, it was when John Lewis was put to rest, I had on the daughter of the late great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a confidant of Martin Luther King, who spoke about the prophets of the Old Testament. And his only child is a professor who teaches about anti-Semitism back in the day. And today as well, her name is Susanna Heschel at Dartmouth. And we spoke about all of this. And do you know what they did with the Old Testament in Nazi Germany? They banned it, and they doctored the New Testament to remove any allusions back in that way because they had to wipe out the Jewish people. And as I talked to you, it's just coming out that Pope Pius, during World War II, the New York Times is reporting, he was in bed with the Nazis. I haven't read the articles, but I've read stories before, and he's been up for sainthood. Your reaction, I'm sure you knew about Rabbi Heschel, what a great man he was. Absolutely. I read about him when I was in college, Morehouse. And I'm not, and there's been suspicions that Pope Pius was the Pope Pius VI, that he was in bed with the Nazis. And I would not be shocked by that because the Lutheran church leadership in Nazi Germany 
actually cozy up to Hitler in a way in a, so that they could maintain power. Yes. So, so I would not be shocked by that. But how should I react as a Jewish person? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you if there was a, a religious leader that was complicit with the enslavement of my people, of African-American people, I would, I would completely question whether they whether they really lived out their faith and i i and i would i don't believe in cancel culture per se but i i would find anything that they said or wrote about faith to be suspect heschel worked with the catholic church on vatican ii where they got rid of a lot of the anti-semitism so hopefully the changes have been made but I don't think this pope should be made a saint. He wasn't. It was sad. That was not saintly behavior. <laughs> no. And it's a tough time right now with COVID and all of that. I'm sure you know Jared Polis pretty darn well. Do you think he's doing a good job or a bad job? I think Governor Polis has done an excellent job during this pandemic in terms of being transparent and doing what's best for the state of Colorado. Like any human being, there's probably been some missteps here and there. But I think overall, he should be graded highly on his performance and, and, and how he's led the state. Right there along with our mayor. But what about downtown Denver? I'm working down there. It's not feeling as safe. I'm worried about downtown. And I think they let it go a little too far. You know, I'm, I'm probably more along with Ted Trumpa. I mean, I, I mean, I have two things here and it's, and I, I try to be nuanced in my thinking because you can have kind of two thoughts that are not mutually exclusive. I find it disingenuous when some people have only focused on the damage done to buildings and you've yet to hear them. You never heard them say anything about George Floyd or the need for better police accountability and transparency in the way that they do their work, a la George Brockler. But yet they try to lead the charge against, oh, my gosh, it's awful. These buildings are messed up. Yes, the property damage is unacceptable. But at the same time, I'd rather have, I also think that the loss of a life unnecessarily is unacceptable when it didn't have to happen at the hands of a police officer. Was that a dig or a compliment toward George Brockler? It was more of a dig. I mean, I like George Brockler. I mean, actually, we had to engage in a few things together that are for the the good of the community. So, yeah, I like George Brockler. But what what I'm saying is that you know, yeah, you can condemn, you know, the property damage, but at the same time, what's more important than the property damage is the, how we got to that point. Why, why, why did people get to the point where they thought their only outlet was to damage property? It was because there were inequities and inequalities and that manifested themselves in the killings of someone like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Elijah McClain. The list goes on. Yeah, let's talk about that case before I let you go. Elijah McClain right in our backyard. Heartbreaking. That too happened August a year ago. What do you make of that situation, especially with your police officer background? The police officer in me would have loved to see more body cam footage. But from what I saw, the officers got out of the car amped up already believing they were dealing with a suspicious suspect. And as an attorney, you know, you know, reasonable articulable suspicion is more than you, the, somebody's walking down the street with a mask on and waving their arms. There has to be some reasonable, objective belief on the end of the officer that that person was committed, about to commit a crime or had committed a crime in order for you to detain that person. And no one's ever said that Eliza McLean was actually that they had belief, a reasonable, reasonable objective belief that Eliza McLean was about to commit a crime. 
I mean, there's, there's no crime for someone to walk down the street with a friggin' mask on their face. At least not now. Although back in the day, it was a little suspicious. When I taught at the police academy, I would say, pretend you're in a Denny's or someplace with high back booths and you hear two guys talking about robbing the store next to you. At what point can you jump in and still assure a successful prosecution? Because I was teaching about inchoate crimes like conspiracy, attempt, solicitation. And the example I would use, well, once they put the, the masks over their head, that was probably a substantial step toward the act, but not so much anymore. Because everyone wears a mask, you have, just like with marijuana laws now. I mean, just because a dog hits on marijuana, that's no longer uh, sufficient to um, compel a search of the vehicles. I know. Times change. In my opinion, Barack Obama has changed. I think an argument could have been made when he was a newcomer and we found out about Jeremiah Wright and Bill Ayers that maybe he was way on the left. Maybe he was a little bit radical. But after two terms and his post-presidency, I see he's a normal family guy who loves this country. And I don't see how anybody could see it any other way now. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense to me. And it was a, there was a major attempt to cast him as a super lefty. And I never thought of him as a super lefty. But I also will say that the burdens of governing always, I think, moderate people. If you, if you have to, if you're the person who has to make the tough calls, it moderates you in some way if you're trying to effectively govern. Yeah, if you're normal. And that's what normal. he said the other day. He said, this guy ain't normal. He's not going to grow into the job. I got nervous because Barack Obama is a smart man and he got tears in his eyes. I think our country is at stake. I've never seen a time quite like this. I feel helpless trying to protect my family, my country. I'm doing all I can. Part of it is this podcast. But tell me, Terrence Carroll, what are you doing and what should everybody do? I'm doing a few things. In fact, I've been yelled at because I hadn't done enough. Because, I mean, I hid for five years. I mean, I mean, it's five years ago, I almost died. And I kind of took a break from public life for the most part while I got myself together again. But for me, I'm working on democracy reform right now and voting rights issues and ballot access and and I'm starting to engage more in other civil liberties related issues around the Fourth Amendment. I'm out there doing trying to fulfill my call. Um, I'm back to preaching a little bit. In fact, I just taped a sermon for a church up in Greeley for Sunday morning. How can we listen to it? I'd listen to your sermon. I don't know how. i got to ask the pastor about that. It's Greeley Unitarian Universalist Church. Do you have some Old Testament prophecy in there like Rabbi Heschel would like? Actually, I'm, I'm actually all New Testament in this sermon. I'm talking about Jesus after the Last Supper when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and, and, and prayed in great agony for God to take the burden of having to go to the cross from him. But he ultimately said, not my will, but your will be done. And I think a lot of us, I think especially people of faith, are all in a place of agonizing right now, trying to figure out what our response should be as people of faith. Because I don't believe our country is so as... Yes, it's a political crisis, but we're also in a spiritual crisis. And at risk of sounding like a televangelist, you know, we, we have some spiritual soul searching that we have to do as a country. It's, it, we just didn't get here because we made bad political choices. There's some underlying rock that allowed us to make those bad political choices. Um, there, there's something deeply recessed in the soul of this nation that's not right that has to be addressed. And people like me and people like you, 
and other people consider them people of faith, we need to take a step back and really evaluate what that rot is and then come up with a solution to address that rot. We need your voice. And you look good now. Some people will do almost anything to lose weight, but how much weight did you drop? Because <laughs> you're looking good. I'm down 110 pounds. And I've been, I mean, I've, I've settled in at my weight that I am right now. So I'm pretty much the same weight I was when I was you know, a rookie police officer back in 1993. Can you still handle that job? Didn't you work the other day downtown as a reserve officer? I did. I worked six nights during the initial George Floyd protest. I haven't been back out. I mean, they haven't called us out to help Denver PD in the latest round. But, you know, I was I was out for you know, seven, eight hours a night, maybe longer during that first week of protests after George Floyd's death. You know, my instinct is always on the side of police officers. I worked with Denver police. I saw a lot of great ones. But at the same time, I don't know when I see that thin blue line flag, that's interesting because I, I see it in the hands of people who wave the Confederate flag too. And that's terrible. I mean, it is. And and I, I saw on my Instagram post yesterday, I engaged the people on this as a page that I follow. It has fitness and nutrition tips for police officers. And it had a thing up there about we stand with the police officers. And in the middle of it was some random white guy with a look like a militia guy with a semi-automatic weapon. And myself and other people jumped on it because it said we always support the police. We stand in. And I find that notion actually ridiculous because the actions that the folks that I know as police officers generally all try to do the right thing. But we're human beings. You make mistakes. Bad stuff happens. Criminal stuff happens. And just because you call that out, just because you say this doesn't look good, this is wrong, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, doesn't mean that you're anti-police. And one thing that we that most of us have to remember is that our government is based on a social contract and that you know people who govern govern with the consent of the governed. And the same goes for police officers. Sir Robert Peel, who's considered the father of modern policing back in the 1800s, wrote the Peelian, the nine Peelian principles. And one of his first principles is, and this was in London and every police department has since kind of adopted them on some level or not. He says that, you know, one of the most important things officers had to remember that you're here to serve the community and that your ability to do your job is based on the consent of the community and the people to trust that you're doing your job in a fair and impartial way. And we're at this place in our country right now when it comes to law enforcement that there's doubt whether law enforcement serves and and does their duties in a fair and impartial way. And so, of course, people are going to question that. And and citizens have a right to question how government and entities of the government function. We're not in a fascist state. We're not in a totalitarian state. Heck, we're not even in a communist state or socialistic states that tend to also be somewhat authoritarian. We have the right to question how our government does stuff and arms of the government. We have the right to question how they do their work as well. And we should. And you know what wrecks it all? To me, Donald Trump, I saw, I think his name is Burgess Owens. He played for the Jets. Now he's running for Congress. He's a black man and he's running in Utah as a Republican. And he got up there and he said, now on the streets, we're fighting the kinds of socialists that my father fought against in World War II. And I'm thinking, you jerk. I mean, it, the Nazis were from the right. I know in the anglicized version, in fact, it was Professor Heschel who explained it. 
they were not from the left. There are bad guys on the left like Marx and Lenin and Stalin, but this desire to cast Hitler as part of the left, that's just wrong, isn't it? Oh, it's completely wrong. It's ahistorical. I mean, Hitler, the Japanese regime, and Mussolini were all far-right authoritarian regimes. Correct. I mean, the, although the Japanese were a monarchy, but the people who ran the country on a daily basis were far-right authoritarians. If I heard the asshole morning host on Denver Trump Radio one more time try to label people on the left as Nazis, they can be bad, and I understand... Here's my view of history right now. Tell me if I'm wrong, Terrence, because you know a lot about this. But as on the streets of Berlin, you had a communist factor coming from the revolution in Russia who wanted to have some power in Germany. And who right. fought them? Well, they needed a strong man. They needed a guy like Hitler who would kick their ass, the old Antifa, and kick it so bad and imprison their leaders that they would be squelched. And isn't that how the strongman comes in? They say, you need us to keep the commies out. You need a strongman like Mussolini or Hirohito. Am I onto something? That's exactly what happens. You know, you look at how Hitler and Mussolini both came up. They came up in the aftermath of war-torn countries and great recessions. And people were struggling and wanted to find answers. And they wanted someone to say, I can fix this for you and put this back in place. And that's and those are the coattails that Hitler wrote on. And they all, he also pointed out, and Mussolini did as well, also pointed out who the enemy was, and the Japanese to, to an extent too. They said, these are the people who are keeping you from being wealthy and from being prosperous. And for Hitler, it was the Jews and the Roma and gays and other people who did not conform with his Aryan whatever it was. And the same was for Mussolini. He tried to create an Italian version of this Aryan Brotherhood mess. Right, and that same asswipe, a morning host, cannot say often enough that the governor of Colorado is gay and Jewish. Do you hear some anti-Semitism in the criticism of Jared Polis, or am I the only one? You know, I mean, I, I don't listen to that radio station, but, you know, to refer to someone by their characteristics in that manner is always what's done when you're trying to dehumanize someone and delegitimize them. What if that same ass of a morning host referred to Jared Polis as Pontius Polis? You have a divinity degree. If a guy starts ridiculing him as Pontius Polis, what does that mean? I, mean, I know exactly what he's saying, that he's trying to kill Christianity. I mean, that's I mean, Pontius Pilate, you know, in, in Christian writing is seen as an evil man who, who killed Christ. Uh, and the same thing goes by calling him, referring to him as gay and Jewish. He's not doing that to clarify who Jared Polis is as a human, as a, as a general descriptor. He's actually making a comment to his listening audience that's that's I mean, it's not even a bird it's not even a dog whistle it's a friggin it's friggin yelling that he's not like us because he's gay and jewish sort of like birtherism that guy is also the king of birtherism and when he saw donald trump he saw his mirror image and instead of ridiculing every politician except tancredo he fell in love he even went to sturgis to prove his love can you imagine those people gathering in sturgis during the covid like it's you a hoax? You couldn't pay me enough to go to Sturgis. I mean, under normal circumstances. But in this, you pack 300,000 people, 400,000 people in the same place. Yeah, that's just crazy. 
And they're acting like it's a joke. They're messing with my life, my children's lives. This guy's messed up COVID unbelievably, hasn't he? Trump I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, our administration, our presidential administration, 45, has not done well with this. You know, there's no, I actually put up on, posted on one of my social media accounts a few days ago. I said, I feel like I'm living in, you know, medieval Italy city-states and dealing with the, the Black Plague back then. And there's no coordinated response. So what people did was just lock their towns out and let, lock the gates of the city and let people fend for themselves. That's essentially what we've done with our states. And someone responded to me like, it's federalism. That's why I, know. I was like, no, this is about broken federalism. Our, our, the drafters of our Constitution created federalism so that under times of crisis, it's one of the reasons that the federal government would be able to coordinate with the various states to address issues of great, uh, of great threat to the republic. I mean, either through national disasters or a national security threat or war, things like that. In this case, federalism has failed tremendously. It's failed because of the guy who leads the federal government. But I want to end on an optimistic note. I I think there's a solution. And the initials are TC, Terrence Carroll. You are back, my friend. You are smarter and you've thought these things through with your background. I think you'd be formidable. I know why they made you Speaker of the House. Now that you're in fighting trim, what about it? Are you going to run <laughs> yeah. again? Where can we follow you? You know, I'm not going to run again because I feel like I have more agency, not as someone who's elected to office, because I don't want to be, you know, tied to some preset notion of what right and wrong is based on party affiliation. I want to be free to put my country over party, put people over party, put people over ideology, and just be able to call it like it is and be thoughtful and thorough in my thoughts and the way that I say things. Um, and not just be, or at least the way politics is now, I feel like there's a premium on being able to yell the loudest. And just because you can yell the loudest is not mean that you'll be able to govern effectively and get the most done. And I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to just uh, bark out craziness just for the sake of barking out stuff. But if people want to follow me, I'm at on Twitter. I'm at Speaker Carol. At Speaker Carol. It's a good follow. You're a good man. You've got the experience, the wisdom, and you've really thought these things through. I can't tell you how pleased I am you came back to my lawyer's lounge. Thanks, Terrence. Oh, thank you, Craig. I appreciate the thoughtful conversation. Me too. Bye. Bye-bye. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's quite a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, 
Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. He's back, the troubadour, Dave Gunders. I love this song, Eddie Don't Quit. It's a story of perseverance. And you know, this week we have on Shane Birch, who's a fantastic golfer. And he's never quit. And he just won on the senior tour. I love this song, Eddie Don't Quit. Isn't it a story about perseverance? It's a story about perseverance. It's a story about ambition, blind ambition to the point where it's not always healthy for for the individual, but the kind of ambition that can bring someone to the top. Right. But Eddie and his fierce determination, I love stories like this, and that's why I'm so attracted to Shane Birch. But here, Eddie not only gets the money, the fame, the fortune, he gets the women, and you invoke the classic, get a great car if you want a great woman. Is that really true? Eddie went out and got himself a Corvette. He was kind of shy with the girls, and in the song says, he, he knows they like it when a man's got money. And is that the vehicle? to flaunt it, a Corvette? Was that back in the day, or do you think that still applies? My vehicle was a 1967 GTO, Craig, and and it did the job. Yes. Was it a convertible? Absolutely. Let's listen to the song, Eddie Don't Quit.
did it with drive. Blind ambition built up an empire fast with his sweat and blood. People know his name far from the town beyond the county. The man stands alone with his pain. Yet it don't quit till he's top of the heap. If he ain't making money, he's incomplete. There's no connection to the folks he meets. Blames it on his own man. And his heart quit when he's hitting the wall. Realized he had nobody to call. And now he's gone, possessions and all. Read it on the stone man. You can read it on the stone. Once again, amazing harmony. Who are the women singing in the background? This song, both my, my daughters sang harmonies. Sarah Rose Gunders sang the lead harmony, and Rachel backed her up in the do-do-do parts. I think that's tremendous. What spirit, what harmony. Another winner from our troubadour, Dave Gunders, Eddie Don't Quit, dedicated to Shane Birch. Way to go, Shane. Michael Bailey, give us your COVID update. How goes the practice of law and how does it affect your practice? So practice of law is doing okay. It's been interesting to do virtual meetings. I've gotten a quick education in Zoom and how to do video conferencing. But now I'm able to do that and you know, meeting with people and getting them taken care of and all that good stuff. I hope your kids are okay, but a lot of people have different living circumstances now, and sadly, people are thinking about their own mortality. If somebody wants to talk over end-of-life legal issues like my wife Trish and I did, how do they get a hold of you? They can call me at 720-394-6887. That's 720-394-6887. Or they can send me an email at michaelbaileylaw at yahoo.com. Or they can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there's a button to make a schedule an appointment there. That's a great way to do it. Although I have always found you accessible. When you call the Michael Bailey Law Firm, you will speak with a real lawyer. And Michael will come to you or you can meet in a park. You can meet at a restaurant, although... A lot of restaurants are not open right now. But the point is, Michael can meet with you any way you want to meet with him. I recommend him. So does my wife, Trish. Michael Bailey, the end-of-life lawyer for you. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a day, what a life, what a great life Shane Birch has had. Full of adventure, ups and downs, but... He just got to the top of the heap. It's the Colorado feel-good story of the year. Shane Birch, champion golfer. Welcome back to the Craig Silverman Show. 
Thanks a lot, Craig. Now tell everybody about your summer adventure in the Ozarks. I mean, Shane Birch has been an outstanding golfer for many years. He won the Colorado Open. He's won a lot of pro tour events. Never quite won a PGA Tour event, even though he did well out there for years. Tell everybody about your golf career, Shane Birch. Oh, it's just your classic journeyman career. I started playing right after college. I played a summer of mini-tour golf up in the Dakotas and around Texas and around, you know, all around the country, really. I was able to earn my Nike Tour card that winter, and so I played the Nike Tour in 1995. Didn't have a win. I had some top tens and stuff, but I was back at the Q School, and I actually finished fourth that year, the winner of 95. So for the 96 season, I was a rookie on the PGA Tour. And then from that point, I pretty much bounced back and forth for 20-something years between the two tours. I accumulated some wins on that, you know, the, I call it the Nike, but it's now the Corn Ferry. It was nationwide, all the different web.com, buy.com. And uh, accumulated three wins out there, but never quite did get a win on the PGA Tour, like you said. But winning last week in the Ozarks in my second champions tour event was was something really really special that i'll never ever forget and uh i think it says on my bio that my biggest thrill in golf was winning the southwest kansas pro-am but i think i'm gonna have to change that one (laughs) i think you do because it was on the golf channel it was incredible and it caught a lot of us by surprise i knew you won q school for the qualifying and we all knew that you kept in great shape and your game is fantastic and when you turn to age 50, this has been a goal for a while. Tell everybody about how golf gives uh, pro golfers like you a second chance as a senior. Yeah, yeah. The senior tour is an incredible tour that gives you a second chance, but they say it's the hardest tour to get on. So I feel pretty fortunate that I got on my first try because, you know, a lot of guys accumulate status by having a good PGA Tour career. That's hence the Champions Tour name. So the guys that win a lot on the PGA Tour just go straight out there and basically have a retirement, you know, to to play and and keep making money. But a guy like me that didn't accumulate enough money or points, I guess you could say, over the years, you know, I had to qualify. And then they make it hard for you when you qualify to stay out there. But once you get a win, they they can't really hold you back very much longer. So I've, I've got a I've got a, a place to play now for a couple years at least, and you know, I'm hoping to turn it into a ten year adventure maybe i can make it to 62 63 like bernard but very very few people do that but you know i played with kenny perry last week too and he's he's 60 already and you wouldn't know it i mean he seems like he's about 50 he's still a big old strong boy well this is the best colorado story in the world and you will keep going for a while and you are far too modest at that pressure-packed scottsdale qualifying in december you not only qualified at senior Q school, you won the damn thing with 17 under par. What was that like? What an accomplishment that was. Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, that was coming off about, you know, pretty close to two years of not much competition. I didn't play, you know, the tournament schedule that I've played for the last 24 years. So I kind of just went in there free and I had played a lot of golf, but I hadn't played any tournament golf, but, you know, I got into position and you had to be able to go seven under bogey free in the final round there when, you know, everything was so bunched up and they only give out five cards in the world. So how's that for modesty? Oh, that was so <laughs> no, You are modest. And unlike a lot of great golfers, you are so approachable. When you play with a guy like me, you make me feel good and valued. And 
I always thought that when you won, it would be at a celebrity pro-am. You did that on the web.com tour, as I recall, a big pro-am in North Carolina. And I always thought Shane would be good around people because you're such a people person. But darned if you didn't win with no crowds involved. But let's back up a little bit because the theme of the Shane Birch story is to persevere and prosper. Were there times you thought about giving up? You know, not really. I mean, the tail end of my career out there where I, I was playing on a medical and I was, you know, 47, 48, and I had some corn fairy status left. I was really having a hard time then. It was hard. You know, I was coming off injuries for one, but, you know, competing with the new era of golf out there was just, it was just hard on me. In any given round, I could do it. But, uh, you know, I knew I I would have a chance if I could get out to the Champions Tour and be the young guy again. And, uh, you know, and lo and behold, when I get out there, you know, I'm one of the longer hitters for the first time in my career. And I feel like I have as good a short game as anyone out there. And so... Like you said, it, it it pays off if you can get there. It's a great tour, so I'm I'm just happy to be there now and be established. Right, but your perseverance, Shane, you are too modest because you had some really bad breaks on the tour where you would miss cuts by one shot or even miss tour status by a shot or two. That's got to be yeah. so dispiriting. But isn't that the game of golf? Good luck and bad luck, and then after you qualified for the senior tour where we all knew you were going to do great, then COVID comes along and how many tournaments got canceled? Well, the very first tournament that was canceled was the very first tournament I was supposed to play in. So let's put it that way. But I mean, at least five or six got canceled and, you know, we're, you know, between April and when we got started playing again, just a couple of weeks ago, but you know, we've even lost more later in the year. They've done a great job. They've done the best they can, I think, you know, to, to like those two tournaments that I just played in and the one were just put on the schedule last minute. So they lost tournaments, but they were able to fight and put a couple tournaments on the schedule for us. And thank God for that. So tell us about that resort in Missouri. It's about a day's drive from Colorado. Is it worth it? I bet it is now that you won. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's absolutely incredible. If anyone wants to go on a guy's trip or a family trip, anything down there to play some good golf and have all kinds of outdoor activities. I highly, highly recommend it. Cedar Ridge Lodge is just unbelievable. It's just in incredible. I mean, the mountain, you know, they got the new Tiger Woods course is opening up out there. They got an 18 hole walking Gary player par three course. There's another par three course that I didn't even get to see. And the two courses we played, uh, one's a core Crenshaw. It's just incredible. Um, that wasn't the one I won on, and I'm not sure the designer of the one I won on, but it was a phenomenal mountain course with all kinds of, you know, elevation drops and water hazards everywhere, cliffs. I mean, just a really, really cool course. Well, that's where you had your advantage being a Colorado kid. Tell everybody where you grew up, Shane Birch, and how far back you go in Colorado. Yeah, I was born and raised here. Grew up on Floyd Hill. And never really knew what golf was. Then I was a ski racer at Loveland Basin Ski Area, and you know did a lot of skiing, played some you know junior high level junior tennis. But we moved over to Evergreen, and I I got into golf. My parents didn't golf, even though they were very athletic, and got into golf and got a job at Evergreen Municipal, and that's where I learned the game at at age 13. And I learned I played every day before and after work, and that's where I really fell in love with the game, so to speak. I mean, I would just play and play and play. I was a big player. You know, I think 
that helped me a lot. I mean, kids these days, and, and don't get me wrong, because the kids these days come out so unbelievably prepared, but I think a lot of kids that I've seen anyways, you know, get into so much practice and practice, 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 and working on their swing and everything, which you got to have. But I think my love for the game and just liking to play, even if it was by myself, you know, I probably learned a shot or two in there that I may not have learned if I just practiced on the range all the time. You didn't just play at Evergreen Muni. You also went around Haiwan a lot. How did you get on Haiwan? And don't you think that was great training for putting anywhere? Well, I snuck on. How do you think I got oh, on there? Oh, boy, I love that. <laughs> no, no. I'm just kidding. Oh, I did. I, I was loving did that because we I've snuck we on did, court We did, but I got a, a job out there. I got, I got a job out there, and I picked the range and grub clubs and and. That was how I was able to, you know, play a lot during the summers. And then yeah, I actually moved down to Bear Creek Golf Club after that and did the same thing for three years. You know, I did the range, I did the pro shop, I did the caddying. So I just went through that ranks up until college. And then pretty much in college, when I got competitive and realized that I was, you know, you know, my game was improving, the summer jobs kind of turned into tournaments, you know, during college. And I just played a lot of tournaments and I always knew I wanted to turn pro. I never knew where it would take me, but that was my main goal in college. Even though I got a degree in parks and recreation, but I was always going to be a golfer. Is what I that was my my goal. You were born to it, and you are not an elitist. I remember when we went down to Walking Stick and Pueblo to play when it was snowing in Colorado. You're such a fun guy to drive with, and when you play golf, it's just a thing of beauty to watch. And I've had that privilege. But just speaking of how you're not an elitist, because some people think golf's an elite sport, how many times did you play Overland Golf Course, Denver's famous old course, along the South Platte? Oh, I was very, very lucky to play Overland. I played every Sunday Overland with Bill Bisdorf and his wife, Norma Bisdorf. Bill was a legendary Colorado golfer, won two out of the first three Colorado Opens ever up in Iowa. He won the first two, and then he won the fourth. and I was just, you know, he played with Ben Hogan. He played with Sam Snead. And I was just lucky enough to meet him at a young age. And he kind of took me under his wing and and taught me the game and showed me how it was really supposed to be played. That's why I never missed a tee time on Sunday morning at Overland through the summers. I played with Bill and Norma every every day, every Sunday. I bet you learned a lot. Are the Bizdorfs still alive? Their family? I bet they've taken... Bill is not, unfortunately, but Norma is still alive and doing well and yeah we've spoke on texts recently but i would like to go and see her sometime soon and i'm gonna do that so anyway that's just fantastic i just want to get to the tournament a lot of people don't have the time to watch the golf channel it all played out in the ozarks there shane birch shot 64 in the first round was that your lowest competitive round 64 that first round no i've shot Lower than that in other rounds. I, I know I've had a 63. I can't remember. I've shot 61 a number of times, but I don't think in a in a tournament. But I've had 63 in the tournaments. But yeah, to, to open up with 64-64 was pretty special. Like I closed out the Q school with 65-65. So I've had some hot rounds here lately, and that was all surrounding a knee surgery in between. After COVID hit, I ended up having to have a meniscus repair so there you are 64 64 four shot lead that is just incredible a four shot lead for shane birch shoot 64 64 we are all thrilled for you but sleeping on a four shot lead have you ever done that before in a pga event 
No, I can't. I, I can say I definitely never have done that before. That was a little different, you know, because you feel like you almost you never have it won until it's won. But I really felt like I was going to do it, but I was trying to get myself to, you know, think positive as and as you know, not kind of already put it in the bag, so to speak. Because I had a lot of thoughts, like basically I'd already gotten it done, but I had eighteen hard holes to play, you know, and I had Bernard and Kenny in my group. And Well, let's just talk about that a second. Kenny Perry, who's won big on the PGA Tour and on the Champions Tour, I think he's got close to 20 wins in all. Bernhard Longer, 41 Champions Tour wins, closing in on Colorado's own Hale Irwin, who had 45. And Bernhard Longer, two-time Masters champion, they're in your last threesome with you. Did you know those guys? Was it intimidating? <laughs> yeah, I had I had met both of them and, and knew them, but I, I didn't really, I'd never played with either of them. And I can't say it was, I mean, it was intimidating, don't get me wrong, but I mean, as far as the first few holes went, I was really proud of myself how well I hit the ball on the first few holes. Now, I didn't capitalize on the greens. I didn't make the putts, but I hit all just perfect golf shots all the way through the seventh hole. And then I hit a really uncharacteristic shot on eight. But, you know, it was a shot that I had to get up high real quick, which has never been my forte. And, you know, I just kind of came out of the shot and hit a bad shot and made a sloppy bogey on the par five. That's when my mind started turning because those guys both make birdie. I make bogey. You know, someone else, some other guys were making a run and, and it was tight from there on out. But my ball striking held up and I, you know, I, Kept my kept hitting most of the greens. I just couldn't really get a putt in, and I, my speed wasn't very good. So I had a lot of three footers. So it was a very nerve wracking day. But at the end, when that last putt dropped in the playoff hole, I forgot about everything else, and it was all real then. So it was good. Tommy Woodard, the legendary Colorado golfer, he knows your game well, and I yep. know it too. We think you've got the best hand eye coordination, and you are like Steph Curry or maybe Damian Lillard. You could make it from anywhere, but we notice that you've tinkered with your putting. As people get older, we notice all the guys start tinkering with their putting. What's up with that? Yeah, I wish I could tell you. I mean, I wish I wish there was something that you could do to make nerves go away, but you know, something in our chemistry changes and it's not even only in the old guys. You see all the guys, you know, a lot of young kids on the tour now are having to change up their putting and this and that it's just and it doesn't matter how much money you make or what it's just a hard that little stroke that little putting stroke that seems like it'd be the simplest thing is just tough to get right and a lot of it's a lot of it's set up and you know fundamentals believe it or not i mean you know if your body's in the right position under pressure it can move a little freer if you if you get a little bit out of position and then you're under the pressure it's a lot harder to work you know use that stroke so yeah i've been messing around with this arm lock putter now for a little over a year it's gotten me two wins so I'm, I'm i'm sticking with it but you know it doesn't automatically cure everything it's still tough to get the ball in the hole sometimes but i feel like all in all you know my bad days aren't as bad and my good days are are good and you know i, I have a lot of average putting days now where you know my last few years on tour i had really gotten my ball striking to where i really could have been competitive but i i wasn't holding putts like i used to and you know, you you just no matter what, you have to you have to make putts. I mean, so 
whether it's for par, bogey, birdie, eagle, whatever, you've got to make some putts, and it can't be just two putting the par fives and just making your three footers that you happen to hit in there close. You got to make some 15, 20, 30 footers, and I feel like with this method, I can I can do that. What do you call that new method? Does it have a name? Is it the claw? Yeah, it's the arm lock, and I do have the claw grip on the arm lock. So yeah, I guess you could say that's a different that's a grip, but the arm lock is is you get a longer putter. So my putter is about 43 inches now. And then you have to add some loft to it. So it's got about nine degrees loft, eight, eight degrees loft. And so you have to forward, you're forced to forward press it to get that loft off. But the forward press is you press the top of the club up against your left forearm and that's still legal. It's, you know, it's not considered anchoring, which in my mind, it, it does seem like you're still anchoring it, but you're not anchoring it to your body, you know, like the long putter or the belly putter that they made illegal. So as long as they let me use it, which a lot of guys are using it, you know, that's that's going to be the method for me for now. And you are such a great putter, such a great chipper. I want to talk to you about that last hole, 18th hole. You're playing with Bernhard Longer and Kenny Perry. Kenny Perry has one shot lead. What was Longer tied with you going into that last hole? Yeah, Longer and I were tied. Glenn Day was already in the clubhouse and Kenny was one stroke ahead of us and he hit a good looking drive. I mean, it was a good looking shot. It's a really tight, awkward angle hole. And, you know, he, he had some adrenaline going too, and he just hit it way further than he expected to hit it. You know, it hit kind of firm in the fairway, ran, ran across the cart path. And in this rough where normally right in there, he could have chipped it out you know, pretty easily and, and got on the green in three, but he went right up against this rock wall. Yeah, I guess he, he whiffed one. He tried to hit it. I saw it on the replay, but he had a real awkward swing. And when he took it back, he, you know, caught the toe of the club on the way down on the rock and just completely missed the ball. So then he had the same shot all over again and he got it out that time. And then he knocked a three wood on the green from like 260. And he had a putt for the win, so to speak, but it was about a 60 foot putt. So he was, you know, Two putt was a good good work for him there, just to get out of there with a two putt bogey. But and then you had to get up and down. Yeah. You had some trouble on the 18th, a tricky par five, but you short game once again came through. You hit the up and down of your life. Tell everybody about that shot. Yeah, I I managed to get up, you know, just about eight eight feet off the green in three, but I had about sixty foot, maybe even seventy foot up over a big ridge. And, uh, you know, on a very quick green and the only shot was, I suppose some people could putt it, but I, I, I wanted to chip it. You know, I wanted to chip it over that first 10 foot of zoysia grass that you can't really predict through there. And I had just a perfect chip and run, you know, the distance is the thing you're trying to get right on that. I kind of knew the line, the line wasn't as important, but to get the distance right under the pressure was really nice to see. And I, I got it up there about two feet from the hole and was able to get into the playoff. And then a four-way playoff, Bernhard Lager, Candy Perry, and a guy named Glenn Day. You go to the first hole. Tell everybody about that hole and why it might've reminded you of playing here in your home state of Colorado. Yeah. I mean, it's got a huge elevation drop. I think it's 18 or 20 yards down from the tee to the landing areas. It was 340 to the bunker that's in the middle of the fairway down, you know, down in the middle left side of the fairway. And I ended up hitting it 339, I guess, because I was one yard short of the bunker, but there's a little patch of rough there. So I was in the rough with a tricky little eye, really. And I had 231 to the hole 
around like 205 to the front, but I only had to fly it 182. I had to fly it 82, 182 to get over a bunker. And then the contour of the land up there was a lot like, say, Padera Golf Club. If anyone's played out there, it's got a lot of banks and berms in it. And there was a big bank up the right side of the green. And that's, you know, that was the only way to hit the shot. It was the only way to do it. And it just came out perfect. I don't know if I could do it again in... 20 shots to get it as close as I did. But you still had to make the putt. Shane Birch putting yeah. for Eagle to have a walk-off win on a playoff hole in your second Champions Tour event ever. And what did you do? How did you feel? And where did you get that <laughs> stroke of confidence? Well, I just knew that I had to take that opportunity right there because there was still a, an outside chance I could win it with a two putt, but I didn't want to leave that to play out. And I certainly didn't want to run it by and three putt. It got extremely fast past the hole. It was fast all the way down to the hole, but once you got a foot or two past the hole, it could easily get six or seven feet away. I knew the line because I'd had a chip on a similar line in the morning and I just played it out there. I had to have Bernard move his coin. He had about a six footer down. So he was going to get a perfect read off of my putt. And, you know, I just had to play it about a foot outside the hole and just get it get it going basically and not you know not have an adrenaline surge where i, I rammed it and I, it was going to be hard to leave it short but you know i got it rolling but you made it you made <laughs> yep. it and everybody who's a shane birch fan started jumping around <laughs> it was unbelievable and then bernhard longer what a gentleman is he a nice yeah. guy He's an incredibly nice guy. Yeah, he's got the unbelievable most incredible temperament for golf that you've ever seen and that's got to be his probably hugest asset and that's why he's such a great champion but you know he comes across as kind of unapproachable and machine like but he's a very very nice guy if you talk to him he's he's very willing to talk back and give you any advice or whatever you want and he was the first one there to congratulate me but like i said i think he was moving in to get a line on my putt and then we kind of met and he couldn't do anything else but congratulate me so he was very you know, happy for me. I, I felt he was very sincere in his, you know, giving me congratulations. And uh, it, it was just an incredible moment for sure. Shane, I just want to hearken back to you growing up in Evergreen. Your parents had the Whipple Tree restaurant. A lot of people around Evergreen knew that spot. Just why don't you pay some tribute to your parents who gave you that athletic gift? And I know your dad's not with us. Is your mom alive? Did she take joy in this? Yeah, my mom's around. She's doing great. She lives up in Evergreen still in the house that I grew up in. And she lives up there. And she lives actually with my sister and my brother-in-law and their little three-year-old. And they did some great additions to the home that I grew up in. And and they just live up there where in Evergreen Meadows between Evergreen and Conifer. And yeah, my parents were, you know, very, very supportive of me. You know, growing up in golf, the Whipple Tree, as you mentioned, you know, helped sponsor me in my first years to get me out and rolling, you know, through the Dakota Tour and, and, and playing in the tour schools. And I've been fortunate enough to, you know, pretty much take care of myself since then, even though we've had some real tough years. Well, not anymore. How much did you win with that putt of yours? Well, on paper, it was 450000 but, you know, it really was a lot more with all the exemptions and the perks and the tournaments and stuff that I'll get in that I wasn't in. So, I don't know, it's kind of like when Tiger, you know, on a different level, but when Tiger talks about the value of his putter that he won all those majors with, and he just puts it as priceless, I say that, that putt that dropped was probably pretty much priceless for me. So, it was great. And you kissed your putter. You, you, you talked to your putter. What a great story it is, Shane. <laughs> 
Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Shane Birch, champion golfer. My goal was definitely to get out there and try and have a you know a secondary career, but you know for it to all happen so quickly to win the Q School in December and then, of course, COVID put a twist in it. But you know I didn't get to play at all until now, so I had about a seven month break from the time I won. And I had a knee surgery in between there. So that was, you know, I've had all kinds of stuff. I mean, I I just can't believe the way it's turned out now. And I've, I've got a place to play for, for a while now. Tell everybody the perks that you get from winning the tournament. It's not only nearly half a million dollars, Shane Birch, but what kind of status do you now have on the Champions Tour? Well, I have... I guess what you'd call is champion status. So I, I get to play in all the majors that uh, we don't have any this year because they all got canceled. We don't have any more. They had one earlier in the year, and I didn't get to play in that one just because I hadn't accumulated any money yet. But I get to play in all five majors next year. I get to play in. They have a tour tournament of champions, basically like the PGA Tour has out in Hawaii. So I get to play in that for two years out in Maui in January, where they really take care of us well. I mean, every single player that congratulated me these last you know 10 days, they said, wait till you get to Hawaii. Wait till you get to Hawaii. And I said, well, I can't wait. But it's just a, you know, a tournament that only winners get to play in and it's a real special tournament. So I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I can't believe how special and your fellow pros had to admire you winning a four hole playoff against champion golfers like Kenny Perry, Bernhard Longer, Glenn Day, and with an Eagle on the first playoff hole. Tell us about the congratulations who reached out to you that you said, Whoa, that was something. Well, it was incredible that, well, I mean, Bernard was the very closest person to me and he was generally, I mean, he was, he was happy for me. You could tell. And, you know, he wanted to win. Those guys, don't get me wrong. Those guys want to win. They'll cut your teeth out. But when the putt went in and it was all over and he couldn't do anything about it anymore, I mean, he was the first one to come up to me. But what I thought was really cool is that a couple of the guys that hung around and Chris DeMarco, you know, who lives here now, we've started to get to know each other a little bit. 
he was the first guy outside the the group of the playoff that came up to me. We we can't really hug or high five or anything, but we gave her a little or elbow elbow bumps, and I was really happy to see him there congratulating me. And then Scott McCarron was there, and you know he he said great job and as well. And there wasn't really any fans. We had a lot of volunteers around, so we did have a big crowd, you know, around that green for for what we were working with with no fans. But after that, just the next few days, because we turned right back around and started playing, you know, all the guys that, I mean, everybody came up and said, I mean, Davis Love, VJ Singh, Ernie Ells. I mean, everybody said, great job, really happy for you. You know, they were all just David Frost. I mean, I can just go down the, the list. I mean, I played with Miguel Angel Jimenez the last two days of this tournament, you know, the most interesting man in golf. He gave me his congratulations. And I just, I was really felt like I moved right into the family, so to speak. I felt like I was really accepted and they may have known who I was before because I've played against all those guys, you know, over my career at one time and another, but they, they respect me now. I feel like it might've taken me that long to really get respect in this game. And, and not that I was looking for it, but I feel like it probably did take until that Eagle putt dropped to get true respect in the, in the game of professional golf. So. But a lot of us who have been watching you realized that your hand-eye coordination was such that you were going to continue to be great at age 50 and for a long time to come. How did you come by that hand-eye coordination? Where did that come from, Shane? Well, I'd have to say a lot of it came from both my parents. My dad's passed away now, but he was an incredible athlete growing up in North Dakota. But, you know, he he was a, you know, the pitcher and the quarterback and the point guard type of guy. So he was, you know, uh, it wasn't a real big town in North Dakota, but he was, he was a real athlete. And my mom was an incredible tennis player, skier, you know, anything she wants to do. So, you know, it was just, I mean, I, that's the only thing I can attribute to. We didn't have any, anything down the line. We didn't have any professional athletes in any way in our family or anything, but my parents are both, you know, very athletic. You know, I always had the pretty good knack for sports like that. Pool, ping pong, tennis, basketball, as long as I don't have to dribble. <laughs> yeah, I know. And what was it like when you played tennis against Agassi? How did that go? Well, it was, we were 13 and, you know, I was a pretty good player here in Colorado, but it was a four state tournament and I drew him first round and he waxed me 0-1 or 1-0, oh, whatever it was. I know all I got is one game out of two sets. You know, of course, he went on to win the tournament, but the, it was actually my best tournament as a junior tennis player because it was such a big tournament that they had a consolation bracket. And I went into that and actually won the consolation bracket, beating two people that I had never beaten here from Colorado in the semifinals and the finals. And that wasn't the reason I quit tennis is just that, you know, I maybe got a little burnt out on tennis and, and whatever. And when I found golf, it just was, you know, just a sport that you could play and practice on your own anytime, anywhere. And, you know, I just, I really enjoyed doing stuff like that. As I mentioned, I talked to Tommy Woodard. We both agree that we've never met a nicer guy more deserving of your success. And he tells me that, Golf is just killing it. He runs, what is it, the Meadows out there? Yeah. They're going to open up City Park. Did you hear about that with the redesign? Well, I knew it was coming soon. Yeah, I didn't know how soon, but I knew it was opening. September. Anyway, what's it like traveling the world? And I know you're kind of new to it. You won your second tournament you ever saw on the Champions Tour. 
golf in the age of COVID. How are they doing it? Do you feel safe? And do you think golf is achieving new popularity? I I hope it is. And yeah, I, I feel safe. It's a little scary. I'll tell you what, I was scared to death because we have to take a home test before we travel. And being these two tournaments were back-to-back, 10 days, two tournaments, if I would have failed my test on the way there, and I had been home for 10 days, I had to go to Texas to see my coach. So there's, you know, the, they say that Texas has, you know, some not so good of numbers. And, you know, I'm trying to be careful. I wear my face mask. I do everything. I don't see, but, you know, I'm around people at the golf course. You never know who's touched who or what. You never know. So it's scary. And I was scared to death that I just, you know, I had limited tournaments up until I won because of, you know, when you win the Q school, you don't just get free run of the place. And then with the COVID coming in, the rules changed even more. So I was just scared to death to test positive and have to miss out on those two tournaments. Now they would have paid me a little bit of money, but there would have been nothing on the money list. And I would have just lost those two tournaments. So we test before we leave. We have to take a test before we get to any golf property. And then of course they do the, and those are real tests. And then they do the temperature tests daily as we get to the course. And yeah, it's a little bit scary getting in the airport and here, you know, and we're not allowed to go out and eat. I mean, we're, we're supposed to take all our takeout or, you know, we've gotten hotels that we could cook at and stuff. So it's different for sure, but I feel safe. I mean, I'm not a big crowds person anyway. I mean, if you ask me if I want to go to a professional football game, yeah, I'll go once a year. I mean, that's enough for me. I don't need, I just don't need all the crowds and the the restaurants and everything that we've traveled in for years and years anyway. I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to take takeout, but when you're forced to, you're like, man, I wish we could just go sit down in a restaurant. But for now we have to be as safe as we can. And there's only been a couple guys that have tested positive on the champions. And it seems like it's, you know, we definitely have our own little bubble out there. I mean, everyone is heavily, heavily tested. Everyone's very, very careful. We wear a mask, you know, every time we're in the clubhouse anywhere except for actually on the golf course or any practice facility we're in mass and you know everyone's cooperating real well i think it's going well in the whole world of golf you know all the way from corn ferry tour to the pga tour to the champions tour i feel like it's it's going pretty good so far so and what a great concept they have with you guys playing monday tuesday and wednesday having the stage and then regular pga thursday through sunday yeah. you have a new guy in your bubble who happens to be 50 the same time you turned 50. You won the first tournament in Missouri, and then a guy named Phil Mickelson won the next one. Isn't that something? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it was something else. I mean, Phil, Phil's, you know, Phil's trying to keep his game up. He's trying to make a run at the U.S. Open to get his, you know, finish off his Grand Slam. I mean, he's got the Masters coming up. You know, he, amazingly enough, he wasn't qualified for that second playoff event, so he's like, I need a place to play and work on my game. So he came out there and he showed how good he is. I mean, he's, he's incredible when I, you know, we're the same age and when I used to play junior tournaments against him, you know, I would go out and shoot my 78 or 77 and then I would go out and watch him shoot 67 or 66. And I, you know, I've always respected Phil and, you know, I always, it's just fun watching the, I have a lot of talent, but these guys, these other guys that win, I mean, look at what's Tiger's done. I mean, the, the I mean, I, I've finally had a chance to sleep on an overnight lead and, you know, he's done it 
80 something times and he's like batting about i mean he's probably 90 percent for tournaments he's leading going into the last day and you know phil's got however many wins he's got and and it's just amazing that how good those guys really are as far as i can play with them any given day but the consistency and stuff that they have is just really admirable and, and well we are so proud of you and the fact that you stay in colorado what is it about you in colorado is it home forever i mean not a lot of great pros live here maybe a few but you're number one right now yeah i appreciate it craig i just love colorado i mean yeah it's i've always lived here i love to fly fish i love to ski i love to camp you know i love the mountains and that's that's why i'm here so. Well, I love your perseverance. I love it that you never quit. We always had confidence that your luck would change around. And with that eagle you made on the first playoff hole, we we're just so proud of you. I'm so grateful that you came on my podcast, Shane. Good luck out there the rest of this year and for many years to come. Well, thanks, Craig. And hey, let me know about that city park opening. If I happen to be in town, I sure would love to be out there. I imagine you're going to be there for it. I'd like to, if I could bring you along. Hey, guess who's playing with me? Shane Birch. Right. That would be something. And they say it's going to be a spectacular. And I love it that you like all things Colorado. Shane Birch, yeah. thank you again. Thanks a lot. Take care. Appreciate it, Craig. Thank You're you, You're welcome. Buddy. Bye. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. I am worried about this country. How about you? Donald Trump knows no limits, and his enablers, his supporters, will not stand in his way. But that is why we are here. And I want to hit you with some sound that really impacted me. And I think we need to discuss. I love fresh sound and the ability to analyze it. And I hope you find this valuable in a segment we call Impactful Sound. Of course, we have to go back to Shane's putt, a walk-off eagle to win your first Champions Tour title in your second start. How sweet was this? Tour Champions Q School, his second event since turning 50, Eagle to win. And there it is, Shane Birch with an Eagle on the first playoff hole. Has become the fourth. Next, I want to talk to you about basketball, my favorite sport. I love golf. But basketball is where 
I excelled even a little more. I had more confidence in basketball than I did in golf, even though I almost got to scratch at one point. But I'm just a good enough golfer to be a lawyer. I suppose that's true of basketball as well. But just as I've seen great golfers and I can appreciate them, like Shane Birch, what a pleasure to play golf with him. I've played basketball against some great players and I admire them from afar. Now I'm pretty distant from it, but I've loved the NBA playoffs, the Nuggets, the Jazz. It's been an incredible show. I root for Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, all of my Denver Nuggets, and they've had a great victory. Donovan Mitchell, have you watched that guy perform? And then there's LeBron, who I admire the hell out of him. And other excellent hoopsters from the past, Charles Barkley, who was called the round mound of rebound, and he is unpredictable, and he speaks his mind, and he was a heck of a player who did not win a title, but Kenny Smith did. And he was a point guard for Houston who could shoot and play smart. And he made the smart move of walking off the inside the NBA set. And Ernie Johnson says, I respect you for that, Kenny. And Kenny got a lot of credit for that. But it's Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, who to me is the smartest of the bunch and a profound American. He sat there and he had this to say. This is a landmark day in the history of American sport. NBA teams refusing to play their scheduled games in protest of racial injustice in this country. Their boycott in Orlando, a direct result of a shooting which took place in Kenosha, Wisconsin, 40 miles from Milwaukee, where on Sunday, 29-year-old Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back. Players and coaches have been vocal in voicing their outrage and disgust, and today made a resounding and unified statement by refusing to take the court. We welcome you to this special edition of Inside the NBA. Ernie Johnson and Shaquille O'Neal, Kenny Smith, Charles Barkley. Um, Wow, with every passing day. I, um, and I know you just were on CNN with Wolf. I was on there at 5 o'clock with him, and we were talking about this. Uh, and I was saying there are these moments that have happened in my 30 years in this chair. I remember Magic and his announcement about HIV, 91. Remember Adam Silver in 2014 addressing the Donald Sterling situation with the Clippers and saying um, that I am banning him for life and how impactful that was at that moment. And then today, no podium involved, simply we're not going to take the floor. Um, so Kenny, Shaq, Chuck, as we wait for the Bucks to make a statement, which should happen any time now. Well, I don't think... Uh, I don't think we could be shocked. I think when some of the guys start talking about it the day before, that started the fire. And then the Milwaukee Bucks, who happened to lead off today, because if the Bucks hadn't canceled, I don't think anybody else would have canceled. And they, and they should have told the Orlando Magic, too. That's the only part I don't like about what they did. 
because the Magic were warming up, getting ready for the game. They should have gave them a heads up. But I think it's appropriate that the Milwaukee Bucks uh, did it because it happened in their home state. 40 miles from there. 40 miles yeah. from there. And then I think you had to cancel the games tonight after the Bucks did not play. Now I think you got a couple questions. You probably got to cancel the games tomorrow also. To let the, that's, those are different set of teams. You got to let these guys know you're standing with them. So you probably got to cancel the games tomorrow. My question is, what is the game plan after that? My buddy Brian Anderson, by the way, fellow TNT broadcaster, but also does Milwaukee Brewers baseball, uh, notified me too. The Milwaukee Brewers canceled their game with the Cincinnati Reds tonight. So that situation in Milwaukee, again, 40 miles from Kenosha. Kenny? This is, this is tough. I mean... Right now, my head is like ready to explode, like just in the thoughts of what's going on. And uh, I don't know if I'm even appropriate enough to say it, what the, what the players are feeling and how they're feeling. And um, I haven't talked to any of the players. I'm just but like coming in, even like driving here and getting into, into, the, into the studio, hearing calls and people talking. And for me, I think the biggest thing now is to kind of, as a black man, as a former player, I think it's for best for me to support the players and just not be here tonight. And figure out what happens after that. Yeah, I, I just don't feel equipped to do that. And I respect that. The fact that everybody was unified in their decision, I respect that. Because if everybody wasn't unified, we'd be talking about something not important rather than the issues at hand. I respect the guys. I respect their wishes. I respect everybody's thought and processes on how they deal with certain things. Uh, African Americans are fed up, people that care are fed up, and something has to change. But I'm with Charles. What is the next step? Do you say, okay, I'm going to boycott the season? Because right now the games are just postponed. Uh, something's going to happen next week, something's going to happen next year, something's going to happen next month. Uh, and I'm, I'm with you on whatever stand you take. but. Are we canceling? Are we postponing? What's the next plan? And how does this eliminate bad people's thought process? I'm not sure that canceling the game is going to make a racist person say, oh, they canceled the game. I'm not going to be racist anymore. We have to identify certain areas, certain problems, root out the evil, root out the problems, and we have to start systematically taking these things down. Because again, you know, we're all businessmen here. You have a plan, and then in order to make the plan go to the next level, you have to take next steps. So again, November is coming up. Make sure you, you get a new DA. Make sure you get a new chief of police. Make sure you get a new mayor. Make sure you get a new president. Make sure you get a new sheriff. 
it's in our hands. It's always been in our hands. We need to put people in, in, in place that understand our language, understand understand our frustrations, and that, that, that'll be where we're starting to you know, enact on the plan. You see, Shaq was brought up in a military family, and he's always liked the police. In fact, he got deputized back in the day. The other things you got to know about all of these fellas is they are businessmen. And Shaq talks about that. And Donald Trump has been good for rich people, and these guys are rich. But there's more than money involved right now, at least for me. And I think for Shaq, too. And all those guys on that set. And the fellas in the NBA who make big money. And you hear bigots in the morning say, I'll never watch the NBA again. Well, did you in the first place? Or were you turned off by too many African-Americans? I won't watch any pro sports. Well, good. Goodbye to you. Maybe Marty Coniglio was right about the number of white supremacists out there. Go to your motorcycle rallies in Sturgis. That was brilliant and dangerous. Donald Trump wants you to die for his cause. And a lot of people showed up for that ceremony at the Republican National Convention at the White House when an atrocity and they were packed together, including people I know from Denver, Joy Hoffman, Don Yetterberg. I bet there were others like Ken Buck in the crowd. Now it turns out that Trump came down to North Carolina and in the room was COVID. I will say this, Trump makes you prove your loyalty. Are you willing to die for him? I'm not. But it is this next bite that shows you all you really need to know about Donald Trump and what a loser, bad guy, cheater he is. When he says, the only way I can lose is if the election is rigged. Think about that before you have an honorable contest. You see, Trump thinks this is his country club. This country is his country club. And he gets to declare himself club champion the way he cheated to those titles, as chronicled by Rick Riley, my guest a couple weeks ago. If you missed that, go back and listen. But now, another atrocity where, think of it, before the golf game begins, he announces, even if you beat me, I win because of this or that, and the creek is too high, and the out-of-bounds is too close, and the course is set up for you, not for me. Or before a basketball game, hey, it's not fair. Your basket's off. Mine's higher. Yours is lower. He just claims the other side is cheating when he's the cheater. And for him to declare this, think about it. Anybody who wants to keep backing this guy, can you really support this kind of talk? Especially in Colorado where we've had fair mail-in balloting for quite a while now. This is the greatest scam in the history of politics. After officially securing the nomination to be his party's choice to face Democrat Joe Biden in the November 3rd election, the greatest president ever, President Donald Trump adopted a grim tone in his first remarks on day one of the Republican National Convention, saying without evidence that he could face a rigged election and repeated his claim that voting by mail could lead to an increase in fraud. They'll be sending them, they'll be dumping them in neighborhoods, they'll be, pe people are going to be picking them up, they'll be bribing, they'll be paying off people to grab some. 
we're going to win this election. The only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election. We're going to win this election. Trump's remarks on Monday came in an unscheduled appearance on the first day of the scaled-back Republican convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, a far smaller event than originally planned. But it still marked a contrast with Democrats who opted for an almost entirely virtual format instead of gathering in the election battleground state of Wisconsin. They didn't go there at all. They didn't do this. We did this out of respect for your state. We didn't do this for any other reason other than respect for the state of North Carolina. The Republican convention will not include speeches from the party's past living presidents or candidates, including former President George W. Bush and 2012 Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney, who voted to convict Trump at the president's impeachment trial in the Senate. Also absent from the schedule are several Republicans facing close elections in November, including North Carolina's very own Senator Tom Tillis. Meanwhile, 27 former Republican lawmakers, including former Senator Jeff Flake, endorsed Biden for president on Monday, citing Trump's, quote, corruption, destruction of democracy, blatant disregard for moral decency, and urgent need to get the country back on course as reasons for backing the Democratic candidate. I'm not going to lie about basketball. I was a great shot. I averaged over 20 a game my senior year in college, small college, Colorado College. But I was proud of that. And without three pointers, I shot out there. And because I was six foot five, a lot of people didn't think I was going to shoot out there. But I could shoot from long range. And we talked about Shane Birch and how he's like Steph Curry or Dame Lillard. Amazing how they could put the ball in the hole from distance. But a great at that was a guy named Robert Horry, who played on a lot of championship teams. And he was a tall guy who could really shoot. And they had three-pointers for him. And he made a nice living, and he won championships, and he's articulate, and he's a father. And just like Shane Burks, he just turned 50, and he's worried about his kids. And these words got to me. I hope they get to you as well. Robert Horry from the heart. And this is something I realized as a prosecutor. If I did not do my job well and bring justice in the wake of a shooting, like a kid with an automatic weapon shooting others, I handle cases like that. If the law doesn't step in, then others will. And we have vigilante justice. And we have people taking the law into their own hands. And Donald Trump is destructive to the rule of law, but I'm going to resist it. A lot of lawyers I know well. Robert Horry will resist it. Robert Horry is speaking from the heart. And he's got a big heart that's breaking. And he says, if you don't take care of a guy who hurts my kid, I'll take care of it. And as a father, we can all relate. That's when the system breaks down, though. God forbid that ever happens. You know, for me, in today, well, yesterday, you know, I was sitting there and I started crying. And my wife walks in. She's like, are you crying because you turned 50 today? And I started laughing. I'm like, no. I said, did you see the video of this guy getting shot? And first, I, I, and I saw it. I'm looking at it. I thought, well, maybe they're going to tase him, right? Because that's what they do with white people. They tase him. And so I didn't have the volume up. And then Christian walks in the room. He says, no, dad, they shot him. So I play it again. I'm like, wow, 
they shoot this guy seven times in the back. And then I have this conversation with Christian. And he's like, that's not, that's wrong, that's wrong. I said, yo, it is beyond wrong. It's just flat out evil. And I'm telling him, and it's hard to tell your 14 year old son yeah. that I worry about him when he walks out that door. I have a 21 year old son. I worry about him because black men are, 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 are endangered species pretty much. People are, these cops are just killing because they feel like if they don't have their body cams on, they have a right. And I tell my kids all the time, I said, dude, I don't care what's going on because at the end of the day, I want you coming home to me. If you have to lay down on the ground and they can kick you, beat you, at least you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to come home to me. Don't, whatever they say to you, don't take it upon yourself to let that rage you have against that cop come out because he has the gun. He can end you. And I don't want him to end you because if he ends you, that means I'm going to end him. <laughs> and, and I know that's wrong for me to say, but I'm so, I'm so much a time to kill type of guy like Samuel Jackson, you know, if, and this is going to happen with me. And I said, I don't want that to happen. I already lost one child. I don't need to lose another. And, and I don't think people understand, especially white people, how hard it is for black people to watch that. But here is the feel-good sound of the summer. Joe Biden with his spine and calling it the way it is. This is Trump's America. Trump is the guy responsible for these protests getting out of hand. Trump throws fuel on the fire. And Joe Biden calls it out. This is Trump's path to victory. And they can put on the widow of a St. Louis officer who got killed horribly. But there were other officers killed by white supremacists. You did not hear about that because this president panders to white supremacists of the ilk of a Michelle Malkin, who now has the anti-Semitic temerity to sue Colorado's first Jewish governor for what? Ordering masks? And she's in bed with top Republicans like Pat Neville and Denver Trump Radio. It's sickening. And none of them will bring up Malkin and how she just got condemned by the Anti-Defamation League. Malkin, who's leading the charge for this 17-year-old vigilante in Wisconsin. Malkin, who's a Colorado problem because she lives in Colorado Springs. And I'm going to keep calling her out. And I'm waiting for anybody on Denver Trump Radio to do so. The facts are there, fellas. Just Google it. Malkin ADL. I was a little ahead of them. Others were ahead of me. Michelle Malkin is a menace. She's in bed with neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And a lot of people you know. And I can't stand it. I won't stand it. We will resist Michelle Malkin and people of her ilk. God bless Joe Biden for calling it the way it is. The vice president echoed the president last night by uh, by telling uh, Americans that they would not be safe in Joe Biden's America. <laughs> well, you know, look, um, if you think about it, Donald Trump saying uh, you're not going to be safe in Joe Biden's America. Well, all the video being played is being played in Donald Trump's America. You know, uh, Kellyanne Conway came out and was very, very blunt about it today. I think I have the quote here. <laughs> 
She said, the more chaos and anarchy and vandalism, the more violence equals a better, better the choice for a very, excuse me, better for a very clear choice. These guys are rooting for violence. That's what it's all about. To prove that you should be scared of Joe Biden, they're pointing to what's happening in Donald Trump's America. You know, I made it clear from the beginning that there's no place for violence or looting or burning. And when I spoke with uh, with Jacob Blake's mother, Julia, you, you guys played her on the air. She's saying, that's not who we are. That's not who our family is. That's not who Jacob is. Don't do it. And so, you know, he continues to root for violence. It's, uh, the, you know, the country will be uh, substantially safer uh, when he is no longer in office. And, uh, you know, I... I'm going to work to calm the tensions and root out systemic racism. I'm going to, I'm going to lead. You, you think he's actually rooting for violence, that he wants violence because it, it allows him to claim a law and order mantle? Sure. And because it takes, his, it takes everybody's eye off the ball. Want to talk about safety? Look at the biggest safety issue in the, in the nation, COVID. You know, just yesterday we had 1,249 deaths. Over the seven-day period, we've averaged 1,000 deaths a day. Now, that is more than the five largest countries in Europe. A combined population, we are a combined population bigger than us. You know how many they've had? 77 deaths a day. He has been incompetent in the way in which he's dealt with this. And not only that, you know, he talks about taking away, he's still in court trying to get rid of uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act, going to take 100,000, 100 million people with 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 pre-existing conditions and and move them in a direction where they can't get coverage. Going to coverage is going to be lost for someone. And on top of that, I got another quote that I found today that was pointed out to me. This was from August 12th. This is what he said. And the payroll tax. We're talking about funding Social Security. The payroll tax. We'll be terminating the payroll the payroll tax. The fact of the matter is the actuary for Social Security said if you do that, Social Security will be bankrupt, not have any money after 2023. We've lost 15 million jobs. We're in a position where you have 50 million people needing Social Security. I mean, excuse me, needing uh, um, uh, unemployment insurance. And instead of sitting down with the Congress and working something out, he's in some one of his golf course sand traps trying to get out of a sand trap. Get us out of this mess, President. And finally, somebody who I could qualify as an expert witness on this subject that is at the heart of this election season. Your Honor, I submit that Marianne Trump Berry, older sister of Donald J. Trump, who was nine years old when her mother took sick and she had to care for her little baby brother, Donald, I know this because I read Mary Trump's book. Maybe she was 10 or 11 by the time Donald Trump needed tending, which he never got from his sick mother and his sociopathic father, Fred. Who told me that? Mary Trump. Fred was her grandfather. Freddie, her dad, the oldest Trump boy. And she knows her Aunt Marianne, and she sat down with Marianne after Donald had served as president. And this woman who was paid by our government to be a prosecutor and size people up. And then a judge, a federal judge. She sizes people up and she sized up her brother Donald as follows. 
and it's not pretty. She knows best what we all know if we put on our thinking caps and listen to this show. Donald Trump is a bad man. He's cruel, he's heartless, and this country has a lot of trouble if we reelect him. If the change of story is a lack of preparation, the lying, the holy what they're doing with the kids at the border. Donald's out for Donald, period. He was a brat. And he went to Florida for one year, and then he got into University of Pennsylvania. I guess he had somebody take his take the exams. No way. And he had somebody yeah. take his exams? SATs or whatever. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. That's what I believe. I even remember the name. I did his homework for him. I mean, so that's our show. Thanks to my guests. As always, my troubadour, Dave Gunders. Eddie Don't Quit, the perfect song for Shane Birch, who never quits. And if they only let these 50-year-olds play, he's going to do great. Keep winning, Shane. Thank you for being on my show. Same to Terrence Carroll. Get back in politics, man. Get back in public life. Your voice is valuable. I value your time every Saturday morning. I hope I've given you another great show. Give me feedback. Share it with friends. Subscribe. It's my pleasure to lead the charge to save America. Let's do it together. See you next Saturday. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.